So there was one question that came <clears throat> just asking for the um, <clears throat> Sutta references for the uh, talk that I gave last night. And uh, and also if there's a website that she could go to. Um, I don't really know about websites, but I'm sure you could Google something and I, uh, I can tell you the name of the Sutta. Um, the other thing I would um, recommend is a book, this book called The Life of the Buddha by Venerable Bhikkhu Nyanamoli. And this is, it's really brilliant because it gives the life of the Buddha, but interspersed with um, suttas. So it's, it is a commentary and then it, it goes into extracts from the suttas. And uh, there's also a chapter about the person, what he was like, how he lived, and also the, about the main teachings. And whenever there's a sutta reference, uh, whenever there's a sutta, um, an extract from a sutta, they, they put the reference. So once you begin to get a hang of how the Pali Canon works and the different, what the different letters mean, so DN and SN and MN and all of that, what those things mean, then... Um, you, you, you've got a kind of a key, and so you can go to the library and look in, in, in the actual um, original texts. Um, there are very, very good translations now. Venerable uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is one person who's done an enormous amount of work translating uh, the texts of the scriptures, and very accessible, very readable. And uh, sometimes I, you know, when I'm on retreat, I take some time each day to look into a sutta or two, and it's really less like going to, going to visit the Buddha and get a sense of how he responds to the different questions that people ask. So um, <clears throat> this is a very nice um, kind of introduction to all of that. Um, and the actual sutta that I talked about last night, the Anatalakana sutta, let's see if we can find where that was. Um, Oh. Anyway, it's somewhere in here. <laughs> uh, it's got all. It's got all the sort of references. Um, so it's a very complete, readable. Um, it doesn't have everything, but it has a, a lot of the teachings and a lot about the Buddha's life. It has different covers, so that's, this is just one of the covers. The others are all reference books, so I couldn't, I couldn't take them. But nowadays, it's very easy to find stuff on, on if you Google it on the web, various web pages, and there are also um, web pages where they have different people reading sections from the from the Pali Canon. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but. The, you, you can probably find it if you look. Uh, <clears throat> so <clears throat> this is just a time if anybody else has any questions about what we've done so far, what I've talked about so far, um, I'd be very happy to have a go at answering them. And also I'd just it, urge you not, not to feel shy or that your question is not a very good question because often 
those are the very questions that everybody is kind of sitting on, waiting for someone else to ask it. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> I'm happy to uh, to hear anything, any question or comment about the, the retreat so far. Yes. Uh, would you have, uh, during the sitting uh, sessions, yeah. we can feel pain in the leg? Yes. To get rid of it. But <laughs> uh, the first thing I always recommend with pain in the legs is just to experiment with just relaxing. Because often the immediate reaction to pain is to tense up around it. You know, to, to, everything tightens around it. And that actually makes it worse. So often just relaxing deeply, if you can, is a good way to to re to relieve it. Um, sometimes just uh, bringing awareness to it can be helpful. Just staying with it, focusing on it, and investigating it. You know, how how would you describe it? You know, fi finding ways to describe it is a way of actually a strange way of stepping back. So, is it a a throbbing pain? Is it a sharp pain? Is it a an ache? You know, what, how, how would I describe it? Is it like molten, molten um, metal? <laughs> there are those kind of pains, or a stabbing pain. So sometimes just investigating it in that way enables us to actually stay with it. What I've said and what I'll say very frequently is it, it's not so much the pain that's the problem, it's the wanting to get rid of it. So to investigate that kind of sort of, mm, I don't want to be with this, in the mind and see if you can just kind of relax the muscles around the pain but also relax your mind in relation to it um, and if you find it too too difficult too distracting then um, it's it's okay to change position well in the tradition that I'm part of you can you can move um, and in fact I wouldn't recommend sitting for you know very long periods of time through intense pain because you can uh, hurt yourself but most of the kind of pain we would experience on a retreat like this we're not doing very very long sittings even though they might feel very very long um, so it might hurt a bit while you're sitting but once you get up and move around the chances are it will it will go away um, on its own uh, but that's that's a very a very common uh, experience in meditation pain in the knees one knee or the other knee that's the most common pain but you can have pain in the back pain in the shoulders you have pain anywhere really <laughs> so um but I, th those are the things i would encourage just to, to take an interest in it to take an interest in your reaction to it to relax around it as much as possible and if that doesn't work then just gently change position that's fine Yes. How long did you sat in silent meditation? You said this wasn't very long. Well, I mean, sometimes people sit for three hours, and that can be very pleasant. Uh, sometimes people sit for much, much longer. Um, one of the monastic customs is to, to sit 
well, here we sit up until midnight, um, although not always sitting still and in the same place we alternate with walking. Um, in Thailand, it's quite common for monks, nuns, to sit all through the night until dawn. Um, and some people like to sit without moving. They get, they get into a kind of very focused state and can feel quite peaceful, quite comfortable. Um, but that's not something that I would necessarily recommend. Um, in fact, often it's better just to sit for shorter periods and just try and keep, work at keeping the mind nice and bright, uh, rather than just try and sit <laughs> sit for for long, long, long periods and then really feel you're getting somewhere. Um, so um, I I enjoy three hours sometimes when I'm on retreat, but that's I don't see that as being a great attainment at all. It's just something I quite like to do sometimes. <clears throat> Anything else? Yes. Um, sorry. Uh, what I wanted to ask you, what's your view about dreams or deja vu? And I think there are different kinds of dreams. And I think a lot of dreams that we experience, you know, in our regular sleep are just the mind kind of processing the experiences of the day you know, or concerns or anxiety or um, excitement, looking forward to something. Uh, <clears throat> I haven't really studied dreams a great deal, so I I don't, I, I can't uh, say a lot about it, but certainly I think they can reveal a lot. Um, and um, <clears throat> there are techniques of uh, you know, writing down your dreams as soon as you wake up. Because one of the interesting things about dreams is that they fade. You know, you think, I, of course I'm going to remember this dream. It's so vivid. And then after about five minutes, it it's kind of fades quite rapidly. Um, déjà vu, I can't really um, comment. It's certainly an experience that I've had. Many people have had the experience. And... Um, I'm not in a position to to say anything. I wish I was. I'd love, I'd love to know about it, but I I can't really. But just suffice to say, it it's a phenomenon. And one of the things that can be interesting is just and the, the Buddha talks. Uh, it's a recognised um, uh, part of Buddhist uh, philosophy or belief is that we um, uh, exist over many many lifetimes. And in fact, where we are now, you know, the fact that we have an interest in, in, these, in these teachings, that we're willing to give up time to practice, indicates that you know, perhaps over many lifetimes we've been kind of gradually moving towards um, this kind of interest and commitment. And so you know, my sense is that sometimes um, some of our experiences, you know, meeting somebody or you know, particular, having a particular connection with somebody, either a connection of liking or of, you know, being frightened or uh, averse to somebody, that that can sometimes relate to previous lifetime experiences. But I don't have a direct experience of that myself, really. I mean, nothing that I could say that's definitely it. You know, sometimes it's sort of you know, a bit of a sense of it. But um, it's not something that we make terribly much of, in fact. But it's it's helpful to have it there as a, 
<clears throat> as an explanation, um, I think we can spend an awful lot of time uh, going into these things and rather miss the point of um, what's really important, which is uh, to uh, cultivate presence and to learn um, about our human experience in the here and now and to, to let go, uh, to repeatedly let go, to simplify rather than accumulate a lot of ideas about what we might have been in a past life or, or what we might be in the next life. Uh, but in this life, <clears throat> we can also um, uh, reflect on, on the fact that how we live has an effect. Um, so sometimes, you know, I've, well, I think all of us go through really, really difficult times. You know, community can be very difficult. And I'm, I think it's the same for everybody. There are times when it's really hard, maybe a difficulty with another person or a difficulty with an institution. Um, and when I've had that, you know, difficulties with other people, um, if I just think a little bit, just, just allow the mind to kind of open to relax, <laughs> what I usually discover is that at some stage, in an earlier stage in my life, I've done exactly the same thing to somebody else. You know, I've treated somebody else as badly as I feel I've been treated. And I always, so when I think about that, when I reflect on that, I just think, well, okay, this is, this is kind of, um, uh, and it's the word, expression, karmic rep retribution. This is, this is kind of like paying off the debt. You know, if I've been really mean to somebody or behaved in a very foolish way, um, and then I suffer as a result of it, either directly as a result or, you know, many years later. Just, okay, this is a chance to pay off the debt. So to to learn how to, how to bear it with patience and equanimity rather than getting into a lot of blame or struggling with it or justifying whatever it was. And just to, to say, okay, this is what I'm experiencing right now. Who knows? Well, maybe you do remember what it was that uh, might have given rise to it, or maybe not. Um, who knows why I've landed up in this particular situation. Um, but let's see what I can learn from it. So it's interesting, and one of the chants that we've, we've actually, it's come up a few times in our chanting, Kama Sakomi, Kama Dayado, Kama, the, the, sort of the Kama passage. I mean, I'm the owner of my Kama, heir to my Kama. That's actually part of a, a passage on uh, reflecting on equanimity. Um, and the way I understand this is just the encouragement to to really recognize that um, what we do affects um, how we are. So what we've done in the past is, you know, we are right now the, the result of what's happened in the past and how we respond to whatever it is that we're experiencing right now will determine the result in the future. So if I get angry and upset and start blaming and um, hurting somebody else, um, then that's a, that's a pattern, that's a habit that's established in the mind. And it, it, it'll, it's endless, and it just creates a lot of misery for ourselves and others. Whereas if I can actually use the opportunity, see what I can learn from it, remain kind of steady with it, rather than reacting um, with aversion or negativity, then um, that brings a much better feeling in the heart. Uh, 
you know, even if we've been treated appallingly. And we really want to punish the person who's hurt us. I remember one time feeling really upset with somebody in the in community, here actually, Amarwati. And uh, I was so, so upset, so hurt by something that had happened. And I could feel these thoughts coming in the mind of just really wanting to punish them, really wanting to hurt them, really wanting them to be humiliated. <laughs> and uh, after a short while, I thought, Chandasiri, this is not what the Buddha recommends. And there and then, I just decided to stop doing that. I just put it down. And uh, I felt so much better. I was so surprised, actually, how light and how joyful I felt when I just gave up those kind of nasty, vindictive thoughts about that person. You know, over time, you begin to, what you begin to discern is that, you know, when you, when you hurt somebody, you know, even if they've hurt you, if you hurt somebody back, it's like hurting yourself a second time. You don't feel very good about it. You know, particularly now that you're all beginning a meditation practice, or some of you have been doing it for many, many years, you know, when you meditate, you become more sensitive to what's going on internally as well as externally. And uh, it's almost as though you, you get away with less and less. You know, you, you have to experience the result of what you do or say, how you are. Um, so we've strayed a little bit from your deja vu and dreams question, but <laughs> I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Um, I came to meditation practice about a year ago, maybe a little longer, and I've always been somebody who kind of worries about things and I'll jump to a worst case scenario about something. And it almost feels like in the last year that it's kind of gotten worse. I don't know, it's gotten more vivid, if that makes sense. And it kind of goes hand in hand with these these sparks or these flashes of being overwhelmed with the fact that I can't escape my own myself, you know. Um, which seems a bit crazy almost. So I don't know if that's normal or um, yeah, I don't know, I, I have a question. I can feel there's a question behind it. And what I would say is it's normal craziness. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and it links in with what I said before. We, be we become more sensitive, more aware. So it may be that it's not actually any worse, but it's become more obvious as a difficulty. And the, um, the response, quite naturally, is wanting to get rid of it as quickly as possible. And also the sense there's something wrong with me. You know, there's something wrong. I must sort it. Or maybe I'm never going to be all right because of this, this problem, this difficulty. And um, I'm very confident that you will be all right. And that um, there is um, a way of responding that can bring about a, a diminution just gradually. Because like worry is a habit. You know, imagining, you know, it, it, and, it's, and it's quite wonderful to have a good imagination, but sometimes our imagination doesn't actually serve us in the best possible way, uh, causes more problems. <laughs> and um, so there are, there are techniques, there are 
like ways of talking to yourselves that I can that I can suggest. I mean, one thing is just what what is your name? Clyde. Okay, it's a nice easy one. So Clyde, you just don't know, do you? Okay, you're imagining what's going to happen, but you don't know. It may not happen. It may turn out much better. And just to gradually replace the worst case scenario uh, that you keep creating, just replace that with, but you don't know. And it starts off again, but you don't know. You know, quite persistently, but you don't know. <laughs> Which sounds, in some ways, is so simple, you can't quite believe it would work. But I would really encourage you to try it. Um, because I've found that was working with similar things, it, it does work. You know, it, it's it's very very helpful because you're actually um, when you as long as you you think about it or struggle with the thoughts about it, you're actually strengthening that habit that pattern. Um, and what we want to do is to to weaken it. And you know you can either do well, I don't know. You don't know, or you could do like the opposite. Well, it's going to be wonderful. A story that many of you will have heard when I used to, I used to, yeah. I'd, when I've been on retreat in the past, sometimes I really worry about my practice. You know, I just feel like a hopeless case. And uh, one retreat I was on, I was having this, um, you know, you're a hopeless case. Your meditation will never be any good. And I just decided one morning just to replace that with. Everything you do on this retreat is good practice. Everything you do on this retreat is good practice. And so whenever the your hopeless case started up, I would just say, everything you do on this retreat is good practice. And uh, you might say, well, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's a delusion. It's, it's not true. You know, how do you know it's good practice? But you could equally ask, well, how do you know it's bad practice? <laughs> You know, they're, they're equally deluded, but it, it's it's better to have a happy delusion, a cheerful delusion, <laughs> than a miserable delusion. Neither, neither you, you can't actually know, like, with, with say, with your practice, you can't actually know whether it's good or bad. I mean, you can know whether it feels good or feels terrible. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the really difficult times are the times that we really grow in, in quite remarkable ways. You know, you develop patience, you develop um, persistence, resolution, um, uh, you know, just a, a willingness to bear with difficult things, which is a very, very important quality. And, you know, if you investigate it, then you develop discernment. Whereas if you just, every time you sit, go into a state of bliss, you might not learn very much. <laughs> I mean, you might think you're great and you're doing really well because it's very, very blissful, very peaceful, but you're not necessarily going to learn very much. And when Ajahn Sumedho first came to England and Ajahn Chah came to, to, to visit after he'd been, either visit or he, I can't remember, must have been a, a year or so after starting Chithurst Monastery. And uh, he went to visit Ajahn Chah in Thailand and Ajahn Chah asked how it was going. And Ajahn Sumedho said, oh, it's really good and everything's going very well. And Ajahn Chah said, huh. Well, you're not going to learn very much, are you? <laughs> so not to be too quick to judge how it's going. You can notice how it feels, but it's not necessarily... Um, you, you, you can't really 
assess other than, well, I'm, I'm enjoying this or I'm not really enjoying this, but I'm keeping going. Um, so yes, anxiety, worry about the future. It's a very, very common difficulty. And certainly there's plenty to worry about. I mean, I don't often read the newspapers and I hardly, I can't remember when I last watched television, but I mean, if I did those things, I'd be in a state of constant worry, I think, <laughs> because there's, there's not terribly much good news that's actually out there for people to read or see. And there's plenty of good things happening, but they don't tend to publicize those quite so much. So another thing you can do is actually just be careful what you, what you expose yourself to. You know, uh, so, um, like coming on retreat is a really skillful thing to do because you give yourself a, a chance just to be away from all of that media stuff, which is almost designed to make us worry and make us feel you know, anxious and concerned. So, um, I think for you, just the don't know mind is really helpful. Don't know. And then um, learning how to talk to yourself in a very kind way. So, okay, Clyde, you, I, you don't know. You don't know. And how is it right now? It's all right. Right now, I'm all right. Yeah, so just, just finding ways to, to calm and soothe and settle can be very helpful. And people who live with me have probably heard me going around saying, heard, heard me going, Chandasiri, it's all right. <laughs> we, we have these meditation days at, at Milne where I live, and you know it's usually a little bit of a scramble to get ready in time. And uh, so I'll be going from one place to another, putting things away, tidying things up, cleaning here, and sticking out notices. I say, Chandasiri, it's all right. <laughs> and it is all right. It's absolutely fine. It'd be nice if it was all beautifully organized, but it doesn't matter that it's not. Much more important that you look after your heart than worry too much about externals. So just keeping your, learning how to keep your heart light. So it's all right, Clyde. Don't worry. It's okay. You'll be fine. Even if you don't really know whether you're going to be fine or not. I mean, we never know whether we're going to be fine or not. But if we can cultivate this mindfulness, cultivate presence there's a lot better chance that we'll be fine than if we just allow ourselves to get carried away with worry and fear and dread. Because that's about the future, that's not about the present. So what we're doing here is we're cultivating the habit of mindfulness, the habit of presence. And when we're present, then we can respond in the most skillful possible way. Because we're in contact, we're attuned to Dhamma, this truth. So we're kind of open to many more options uh, than our thinking mind can um, uh, be aware of. Uh, so, um, yeah, just encourage you to keep on practicing. Uh, the other thing with uh, fear and anxiety and worry, you know, that you can do as an experiment is just to notice how it affects you physically and just come into the body and try to relax the body, that can be another helpful strategy. Rather than thinking, oh, I shouldn't be thinking these thoughts, I shouldn't be imagining these things, just to you know, focus on how it affects you often in here. 
And just to breathe through and relax in the belly, relax your face, relax your head. And take yourself into nature if you can. You know, trees are really wonderful for calming, settling. Yeah. You can just lean against the tree and just think, oh, this tree's been here much longer than I have. And it's all right still. So, a few thoughts. Yes. Um, so, quite often you've mentioned about coming into your body during meditation. And I'm exploring meditation and yoga. And um, I understand that yoga came around around the same time as Buddhism in India. It came around a thousand years ago. So, I always wonder if the Buddha must have been around people practicing yoga and yoga teaching. And I find that when I practice yoga, it helps me um, enter a deeper, more comfortable meditation because it brings me into my body. Yeah. And so I always wonder like, why a physical practice or yoga practice isn't talked about in Buddhism or in the past. So it's more kind of tool partly because there are so many wonderful yoga teachers around <laughs> I certainly encourage it and uh, <clears throat> so it's not at all that there's anything uh, against Buddhist practice um, and it is, it's, it's a wonderful means for just being fully in your body so it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, it is a spiritual practice <laughs> In the ancient yoga mm. describes the physical practice of yoga as a tool to meditation. Yes. Yeah. 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 So um, I mean, the Buddha probably practiced yoga as well. <laughs> it's quite interesting in the in the uh, uh, Sutta on the foundations of mindfulness. He talks about mindfulness of the body, and I was saying. At some time, I was saying, talking about being aware when the body's of the breathing and then uh, the posture and then doing the ordinary things like bending and stretching. You know, he says, you know, be aware. Mind, you know, you can be mindful when you're bending or stretching or um, looking forwards, looking backwards. And you know, to me, it's, when I when I read that, I thought, ah, oh, yes, you know, probably that's what they all did. You know. Um, so it's it's not that there's anything contrary to um, Buddhist practice, and I think it depends a little bit on the attitude because it can be done, you know, just for you know to keep yourself in good shape. But <clears throat> um, maintaining like the health of the body, uh, maintaining uh, enabling um, a comfortable, you know, to be able to sit more comfortably. You know, because it loosens up your knees and your hips and strengthens your back. You know, these are all really good things to do. So I, I'm, it, it's good. To have nothing against yoga. I don't think the Buddha would have had anything, anything against yoga either. Either. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hello. <laughs> I am struggling in my practice with uh, boredom. Um, it seems like anything I do is um, all hyperactive. To finish quickly, but then when I come to sit, I also want to finish quickly with that. 
it seems like five minutes came in the last half an hour. Um, and you have some advice there for uh, all those practice. Yes, I've suddenly realized that we were supposed to be passing the microphone around so that we could record the questions. But anyway, <laughs> so question about boredom. Uh, boredom in practice. Uh, practice is incredibly boring. <laughs> it's not stimulating or exciting. And when you live, when you, when you have a very interesting life, a very active life, when you come on retreat, it, it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, I've been very impressed at how quickly you've all you know, settled pretty well. I mean, as I said, probably internally you're not so settled, but you know, there's, there's not a, a feeling of terrible restlessness. But um, it is, it's difficult, you know, because, you know, you come here and suddenly, you know, all you have to do is come here and sit and breathe and be aware of breathing. I mean, that is not exciting in the way that um, most of the things that you do are. It's not stimulating, it's not demanding. Well, it's not demanding in the usual kind of way. It demands an enormous amount of patience and a kind of humility and a willingness. I mean, for years, I, I never really bothered with breathing meditation. I, I was more interested in getting into, spa you know, getting into a nice spacious state and feeling you know, calm and peaceful. And to actually attend to each breath, you know, I just, partly I couldn't do it. <laughs> but also, you know, I just couldn't be bothered. And I remember Arjun Sumedha one time sitting up on the high seat saying, well, he'd been, you know, he'd been a monk, I think, for 20 years at that time. So it was a very long time ago. And he said, well, what, what, have, I, what have I learned? What have I, what have I attained in my 20 years of practice as a monk? He said, well, I've... I've learned how to be with one breath. <laughs> and I, I've always remembered that because um, that actually was what helped me turn a corner a little bit with this and think, well, actually, maybe it is worth applying myself to do this, you know, even though it, it isn't very interesting. And what is, is interesting is the fact that as you do it and as the mind begins to settle a little bit, it actually becomes quite pleasant or very pleasant it becomes more interesting but it's a matter for the mind to just sort of drop down from its high revved up state um, which is how, how many of us live our lives just allowing it to kind of drop down a few notches into a state of of calm and then as i said it becomes pleasant but you have you have to have the willingness to to go through the the boring bit um, try and be interested in the boring bit. Try and be in curious about your boredom. You know, notice how it feels like, what it feels like. And notice, see if you can, I mean, I was interested to hear how you describe when you, when you come to sit and you're just wanting to move on to the next thing. That's a very interesting phenomenon. I think it happens a lot around walking meditation. Because walking meditation, I mean, it can seem so nothing much. You know, plod, plod, plod stop, turn around, plod, plod, plod. <laughs> and there can be a tremendous impatience wanting to kind of move on to the next thing. But what's the next thing? The bell goes, you come back and hear and breathe, breathe, breathe. <laughs> so I was on the walking path and I was actually just really enjoying 
just plod, plod, plod. It was, it was, it was not unpleasant because I was kind of just at ease with it. I wasn't waiting to, to do the next thing. I wasn't in a hurry to come back in again. It was just, okay, this is not particularly unpleasant. It's not, you know, it's, it's quite neutral in some ways. Uh, so why do we have this, uh, impatience? And again, I think impatience is a habit. You know, we have a habit of wanting to move on to the next thing, wanting to get as much done as possible in as short a time as possible. And then we wonder why we're stressed. <laughs> you know, we create stress in the way that we respond to our lives, in the way that we respond to, to the things that we need to do. So I'd encourage you to really develop a habit of just really doing one thing at a time and to enjoy it rather than be doing it in order to get it finished, to move on to the next thing, in order to finish that, to move on to the next thing, to finish that, to get on to the next thing, and then doing six things at once. Um, and the modern world is very um, uh, unhelpful in regard to um, to this because it's it you know there's such an emphasis on efficiency, you know, getting as much done as possible. You have all these machines to, to do stuff for you. And instead of letting them do stuff and then relaxing, you let them do stuff and then you do even more stuff. Um, so <clears throat> for all of us, you know, learning, learning about meditation, uh, you know, we can use those machines to do stuff so we have more time for meditation. Uh, so it's, 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 it's an interesting one. It's a very, very interesting question because it, I think it's a very common experience um, because it's not, it's, it, it, it's um, very ordinary. You know, Theravada Buddhist practice is, is very, very ordinary. We don't promise bright lights or special experiences. And if people do have bright lights or special experiences, we, we, don't, make, we don't make very much of it. We think, oh, yes, well, it'll change. <laughs> <laughs> Some people have it, some people don't have it. No big deal. So you don't even have the feeling of, I'm getting somewhere. I'm, I'm, I'm really good now. I've, I've, I've had this experience. You know, there's no space for that. <laughs> Which um, is a little bit different to the way that uh, the world works, where you make much of your special experiences. Uh, a question over here. Yes. Because I have to be a person when I work, 
objection which was against the overwhelming substance issue. So I would like to know if you agree with I get very concerned when I hear about the um, pressure on people with their work and how sometimes it seems that just more and more and more is demanded. And okay, you earn an enormous amount of... Well, I don't know if you do, but people people can earn an enormous amount of money just through, through you know, and um, maintaining uh, this very, very high... Uh, level of activity in the work situation. Or maybe they just have to maintain that high level of activity just to keep their job, just so they earn just enough money to live. And that really distresses me because it's not, it's not really a, a reasonable life, actually. Um, so I, I, I feel concerned when I hear your question. And I'm, I'm not surprised, actually, but I, I do feel concerned. Um, so how to reconcile the Buddhist values with the commercial uh, demands uh, and the work ethos where you have to be aggressive and assertive in order to maintain your position. Um, coming on retreat is a really good start. <laughs> um, just giving yourself that kind of space and that opportunity to investigate. And it sounds to me as though you're actually quite aware of what's happening for you, which is definitely a step in the right direction. So although it feels as though you're caught up in this uh, momentum, this demand, there is a perspective. So then the question is how to, you, how can, <clears throat> how to manage your inner life with your, um, the demands of your work. Um, one of the things I always like to emphasize about on retreat is the integration of practice into daily life, whatever you're doing. So just seeing, appreciating the significance of at least making the effort to live up to a precept standard, you know, to keep the five precepts. You know, whatever's happening around you, just have a, a clear commitment to not harming, not harming yourself, not harming anybody else, uh, to impeccable honesty, to um, responsibility around your sexuality, to right speech, which is probably one of the most difficult ones, and as far as possible, abstaining, avoiding uh, substances that cloud and confuse the mind. Just having these these five things that you take with you wherever you go, and and you know keep re recollecting, not as something to beat yourself up with if you if you fail if you slip up, but more as something to aspire to and to feel glad about. Uh, just having made that commitment, that aspiration, so finding ways to celebrate your Buddhist practice as it manifests in your daily life, in your workplace, home, family, whatever. Um, and then when I spoke about walking meditation, standing meditation, you know, seeing, experimenting with integrating those into your daily life. So rather than frantically 
uh, moving from one place to the other with your mind full of all what I've got to do next, which links in with Madalena's question, just actually be with the body walking. Enjoy the the journey from one room in your office or wherever you work to the next room. You know, just feel the feet on the gro- on the floor. Uh, feel check whether your shoulders are relaxed. Check whether your face is relaxed. Your hands. Just taking a moment to do that, and that will not diminish your productivity one bit. In fact, it'll probably enhance it. <laughs> um, trying to find time in the day you know, at your place of work, even just for one minute, a couple of minutes of just being with the breath. Remember one of the monks, when we have this family camp here every year, and one of the monks, I came to one of his sessions, and uh, he was talking about, now we're going to do a mini meditation. I think he's like, a mini meditation, which was just actually basically sitting quiet for one minute. You know, with these little kids, but we can do it ourselves. We don't have to. Be, you don't have to be a little kid to do a, a mini meditation. Uh, noticing, like when you touch things, you know, if you pick up a cup to have a cup of tea at your desk while you're working on the computer and on the phone at the same time, just <laughs> being aware of the of the physical sensation, you know, rather than in here, just actually feel what it's like to hold a cup. Um, what it's like to be sitting on the chair, what it's like to have the feet on the ground. Um, just really using every experience that you have throughout the day. You know, sometimes people can think, oh gosh, it means we've got to meditate all day. Heavens, I don't know if I can do that. But it's more making use of the opportunities that present themselves through the day. I like... I like breathing out, actually. That also is a very helpful uh, strategy. You know, when you are feeling stressed, troubled, in the middle of a difficult conversation, actually just f- focusing quite consciously, deliberately on the out-breath, just calmly, just... Just a really conscious out-breath. It's very helpful for settling. Very helpful. It was interesting, I was talking about this on a meditation day in Edinburgh, and there was a doctor there who pointed out that the, I can never remember, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic, the vagus nerve. So one of them stimulates, um, breathing in stimulates the kind of, the the fight and flight, the kind of energetic bit. And then the out-breath stimulates the calm. Um, Tell me more, Anne. (laughs) <laughs> the, 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 the parasympathetic. So, it's called visual tone, which you get when conscious, slow breath. Right. So I was really interested to discover. I mean, that's what I've been telling people for decades, but to realise that there was a physical basis for this. <clears throat> so, n- not the exasperated, rapid outbreath, but more just a calm. Conscious outbreaths, just as a way of settling, calming. You know, do that whenever you remember during the day. Um, and the other nice thing to do is just looking for little things you can do to make people happy. 
which might sound a bit strange, but, um, you know, in your place of work, your home, family, wherever, doesn't have to be a huge, massive effort, but just some little things. Um, you know, picking up something for somebody, smiling at somebody, um, opening the door for somebody, standing aside for somebody. You know, doing these things in a very conscious, deliberate way. Um, it's like generating uh, something very, very good, generating blessing for yourself. And of course, other people enjoy it. They appreciate it as well, whether consciously or unconsciously. Even people who've been really mean, because often people are really mean because they're stressed, you know, stressed or frightened, uptight. And so if you can do something kind for them, that can actually help them to to settle, to feel a little bit better in themselves. Um, so that's another, another strategy which um, can be very helpful in making your own life a brighter, more cheerful experience and also supporting others in in their lives, their difficult, stressful lives. There's a few few suggestions. Oh, a question here, yes. In the same line, I think um, that um, um, having um, things coming in the house um, through the children that are <clears throat> different to uh, the Buddhist practice and and what we hold as values in our house. Um, yeah, so what in simple words, you know, what is school? School. Mm. It's not what is school. I find. And um, yeah, I've been getting a very big title. And getting really upset because I see my children changing around yeah. their peers and challenging us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I shouldn't get upset, but I, I think I'd get I think I'd get upset too. <laughs> Very difficult. I think one of the most difficult things is being a parent. And uh, I, it's not something I've done in this lifetime, but I, I can imagine it must be very, very hard. And uh, you know, what I tend to say to people is um, actually to just trust in the values that that you hold. You know, as an example, you know, you, you've... Um, and to just live what's... Um, in the best way that you can, and to support them as a as a friend, you know it's so easy this what Clyde was saying about worry it's so easy for the mind to take off into you know all the terrible things that's going to happen to them you know you 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 create this ghastly future for them based on some little incident, which is what the mind does it's very creative. The mind, you know, and you, and you, it, it becomes so real, you know, this idea of what, what, what might happen, what's going to happen to them. But it doesn't have to happen like that. So again, you know, just focusing on the here and now. And as I said, just, you just have to trust. Do your best to, um, 
kind of walk your talk, as it were. So to, to um, again, the five precepts, harmlessness, kindness, um, gentleness, compassion, understanding, and to realize that it's incredibly confusing for children growing up now, you know, the things that they're subjected to. And if you worry about it, then you're not actually present for them when they come home with all their whatever it is. Whereas if, you, if you're able to respond to them from a place of mindfulness and kindness and care, I'm imagining that the response will be um, much more appropriate than if it's just coming from worry and fear. So contemplating your own fear and worry and um, figuring out strategies for um, counteracting that. So, you know... Um, just learning how to talk to yourself in a gentle way, you know, it's all right, they'll be fine. They'll be fine, even if you've got no idea whether they're going to be fine or not. Just bringing that up in your mind, they'll be fine, they'll be fine. You know, I've lived my life as well as I could. I've supported them in living their lives as well as they can. Okay, they're being influenced by outside things, but I'm, I'm, their, I'm their refuge. I'm, you know, I, I'm there all the time for them. And maybe they'll go off the rails a bit. Maybe they'll make some pretty awful mistakes. But just to, to make a determination to be their friend, uh, no matter what, would be one one suggestion. Um, fear and worry never really uh, helps very much. So it's important to understand those habits of the mind and to figure out ways of of, of counteracting them. Because they're not helpful. They're completely understandable. And they're very prevalent uh, these days, particularly. Or maybe they've always been prevalent. I mean, we, we, we want to survive. And uh, so fear is a very big part of our um, response to what we perceive as being dangerous. Um, but it's not, not always the most helpful response. Um, so I do... Um, well, I, do I empathize or sympathize? I do feel for you because I, <laughs> I think it must be very, very difficult. But I, I think, you know, coming here, cultivating a practice is the best possible thing you can do for your kids, really. Not that you're going to necessarily teach them to meditate or, you know, inculcate Buddhist values um, in a in a kind of, you know, this is Buddhism and you've got to learn about Buddhism, but more just how you live is your teaching, is your, is your way of guiding and encourage, encouraging them in, in wholesome values. So, um, yeah. Yes. I, I always think about food during my meditation. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. It's a really new experience for me. I practiced meditation three years, but here it happens a lot. Here? Yeah, yes. I think about food. Yes. I think about food. Yes. 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 <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes, it's 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 the one sort of pleasurable, exciting thing of the day. 
the meal. Sometimes when I go on retreat, I fast. And people sometimes ask me why I do that. I say, well, it's because eating is just so exciting. <laughs> so stimulating. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an important thing to notice, you know. And, um, you know, when there's, again, it's a way of dealing with boredom, you know, so you don't have much to think about. The breath is, you know, pleasant when the mind has become settled. But when the mind is not particularly settled, when the mind is, you know, um, still a bit stimulated, then you go to something else that's very pleasant, which is like food and eating. And if you do a lot of cooking, you know, expect you good cook, enjoy cooking, then um, that's what the mind will go to. Yeah, when I used to be in Anagari Car, I used to do a lot of cooking. I remember at Chithurst one time, and I used to make this determination. If I was going to be cooking the next day, what would happen if I wasn't careful is I would prepare the meal the evening before in my head. And I wouldn't just prepare it once. <laughs> it would. I'd go through the same thing three or four times, and I could actually know how I was going to chop the carrots and what I, you know, the, the order I was going to do things. I'd have a very, you know, it was as though the whole thing was happening several times over during my meditation. So I, I made a determination. I, I, I decided, okay, Chandasuri, you can prepare the meal once. <laughs> but um, I tell you, I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> so yes, it's, it's, it's understandable. So what can we do about it? Maybe rather than try to be with the breath or to be totally mindful the whole time, see if you can just do one mindful breath. You know, just try one and just really enjoy one mindful breath. So maybe in between one course and the next course, <laughs> have a mindful breath, enjoy that. And you know, once you get into the way of getting one mindful breath, maybe you could s slip in another one. Uh, and, and so you begin to notice the times when you're not thinking. You know, because thought, you know, there's a kind of energy to thought, isn't there? It just kind of takes over. It just kind of gets, it just sweeps you along. But as we become more mindful, as we learn how to just occasionally step back, then we can notice the gaps between the thoughts, which is like the beginning of, of, of letting go, interrupting the flow, the pattern, the habit. And it's not just food that people get obsessed about. I mean, you can get, you know, you can get obsessed about anything. You know, if something has happened that's upset you or, you know, you've got some problem you're worrying about, you know, that can also take a, take a grip on, onto your mind. And uh, so the mind will pick up anything. Uh, we could call it Mara. Come along and find any way to distract you from the present moment. And... Uh, you know, you found something rather, rather pleasant, rather enjoyable. <laughs> uh, but sometimes people find things that are really unpleasant. You say, well, why on earth do you think about that? It's such a wretched, miserable thing to think about. Um, but the mind just can't let it go. So we need to develop um, sort of strategies uh, for letting go. You know, little, little tricks to play with the mind. Uh, Yeah, I hope that helps a little bit, or at least reassures you. <laughs> yeah, yes. 
uh, my mother has always been a, a very kind person, kissing mm-hmm. us up, but now she has Alzheimer, and uh, so um, her her personality completely changed. So even we try to do a good thing for her, like giving her some um, uh, a good place where she can stay. She she is very aggressive and very against us. So I don't know how to act to her anymore. I always try to be kind to her also, but sometimes it doesn't work because even the, the good thing that we try to give her is yes is so blocking and so aggressive response. So I would like to have well, um, you have a, a very big challenge with that situation. Very, very demanding. And one around which you'll develop an enormous amount of wisdom. An opportunity to develop a huge amount of wisdom, compassion, patience, kindness, and and skill. It's um, a very tragic, very difficult situation that many people have to face. And um, basically, you just have to do the best you can. And I'm interested to hear you say how you just try to be keep, keep trying to be kind, do your best to be kind. It can also be helpful um, to realize that kindness is not necessarily doing or saying what the person wants. You know, sometimes you have to be quite firm particularly with somebody in that kind of condition. Sometimes that's the kindest thing you can do. So you may end up having to speak to her in a way that you would never have wanted to speak to her, but that, that can get through to her, that can um, help her to do what, whatever, whatever is needed. Um, but, it, yeah, the, norm, the normal strategies often don't, don't really work in that situation. Um, so patiently bearing with the with the abuse that you're obviously receiving from her, and also noticing moments when when that's not there. You know, moments when perhaps her mood is is more even, and and enjoying those. Um, and it's it's as though she's gone into a world that you can't really understand, isn't it? You know, you, the, the, the norm the normal rules don't really apply anymore. Normal strategies don't apply. Um, but if you're if you're you know really mindful, really present with her at those times, that will help her to settle. That that will have a very good effect. And it sounds as though that's what you're really trying to do. And I really. I really praise that. That's a really good thing to do, just to try to be as calm, patient, and kind. And there may be moments where there's a little glimmer of a connection. You, know, you never know. I've heard stories of people whose parents have Alzheimer's, and you know, just little moments where there's a sense of recognition, a sense of real contact um, in the midst of their their world. And people are often aggressive because they're frightened. So she's probably experiencing a lot of fear some level and she doesn't quite know who you are or what you're trying to do very frightening so just keep on doing the best you can it's very good and and also you know coping with your sorrow because there'll be sorrow there as well it's like losing her before she actually dies and that's that's something to be acknowledged um so i'm sorry to hear you have that 
burden, that difficulty. Mm. And celebrate the good things that you've enjoyed. You know, the fact that you have had somebody who's been able to um, offer you what she has in your life. That's a, that's a very great blessing. Uh, I mean, many people have ghastly things with their parents right from when they were born. And the fact that you've had such a good um, uh, contact with her up until whenever it was that she began to, to lose her mind. So that's a, that's a blessing. That's something to remember and celebrate. And share the blessings of your practice. So when we do that chant at the end of the day, it's an opportunity to share the blessings of our practice with with those who perhaps we can't relate to in, in a normal way anymore. Um, but we can still share the, dedicate our practice for their welfare. And that somehow, I find, gives a, a much more positive uh, feeling about the situation. You know, there is something I can do, um, even if it doesn't apparently make very much difference to how the person is. Um, so I hope that's helpful. Remind me of your name. Stefan. 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 Yeah, thank you. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah uh, about a year after I started practicing meditation, I found myself sort of going towards vegetarianism, um, which wasn't really a kind of conscious choice, but it kind of made less sense to, to um, be eating meat. Um, so I guess I was interested in hearing your views about vegetarianism and veganism in Buddhism. Because I'm, I, because I am interested in, in just, um, how obviously, you know, the, the Buddha and, and Ajahn Chah, two enlightened beings, weren't vegetarian. And I, I'm not just trying to raise a contentious issue, but I genuinely am kind of interested in, in how that works. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> the encouragement in Buddhism is to kind of live lightly. You know, to to take what we need, um, and as far as possible without harming um, other beings. So vegetarianism, veganism certainly accords with um, with that that, that principle. Um, the story behind the Buddha's. Um, unwillingness to adopt vegetarianism as a standard for the monastic community um, goes back to the time of his cousin who was very, very jealous and was trying to find a way to create a schism to split the community because the Buddha was very, very charismatic, had an enormous gathering following of monks and probably nuns as well by that time. And his cousin was jealous and was trying to find a way to divide it, to break up the community. And so he quite deliberately um, suggested certain standards that sounded very good, sounded very noble, and said, "Look, let, let's let's adopt these standards." And you know, there were people who kind of said, "Yeah, that's great, that's great, let's do it." And um, the Buddha um, clearly wasn't wasn't going to go along with this because. Um, And I can actually only speculate what the what the Buddha might have been thinking. But one of one of the important things um, about the, um, the the bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, the nun, monks and nuns, 
is that we're alms mendicants, that we receive food from whoever would like to offer it. And there are certain kinds of meat that we don't accept. We can't accept meat that's been killed from an animal that's been killed specifically to offer us. So we can't, we don't encourage killing. Uh, and certain other animals, and I can never remember the list, there's 10, including, see if I can remember some of them, lion, um, horse, um, elephant, I think, um, hyena, um, human flesh we can't have, you'd be pleased to hear. <laughs> I don't think we can have dogs either. I, if you're interested, I can, I can, I can bring the list. Tiger. Some of them are because the animals are like associated with royalty. Some of them are because if you eat tigers, then if you walk in the for if you're in the forest, and a tiger smells you, they'll recognise that you've eaten a tiger, one of their own kind, and they'll be much more likely to attack you. So there's different reasons for these prohibitions. Um, however, um, for him. You know, and at the time of the Buddha in India, there were all kinds of different um, dietary requirements um, that different sects uh, would insist on. You know, the, the, like the Brahmins were very particular about how the food was prepared and wouldn't have certain things if it wasn't prepared by a certain person in a particular way. And for the Buddha, what was more important was to for the monks and nuns to be available to receive food from anybody because for him it was really important that people have the opportunity to give. So he made much of that. So rather than saying, well, you know, I'm not going to have your food. Is the meat there? No, I'm not going to have it, which is kind of like a rejection. He um, made it that, um, to the way that we talk about it within our communities, that individuals can choose to be vegan or vegetarian, you know, not, 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 to, not to take meat. They receive it, but they wouldn't necessarily eat it. So this is something that some of the community choose to do, to, to, to follow a, 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 either a vegan or vegetarian diet, as far as they can, within the, the form that we have. But basically, the, the idea is that we just make ourselves easy to look after. So, I mean, I was, I was strictly vegetarian for a year or so, and it was interesting living here where, I mean, we don't, we're not offered a lot of meat, but, you know, sometimes people bring meat and they bring very, the best, beautifully prepared. And I found that refusing it actually felt like not the right thing to do. Because, um, you know, people had gone to the trouble, a lot of expense sometimes, to offer us something that was really special for them. And just to say no was a kind of... Um, well, felt to me like a kind of um, obstructing of a of a, a kind of energetic exchange. So I definitely encourage uh, vegetarianism, and I'm working towards encouraging veganism. I do like milk, actually. <laughs> but, um, you know, I can see that this is something that is really good to reflect on, to contemplate. And as long as you can find a way to, you know, so you don't get really sick from not having proper nourishment you know, I, I would certainly encourage I am, I'm, it's amazing actually how just in the last little while so many more people are adopting, you know, it's, it's no longer strange to be vegan whereas 20 years ago it was considered really weird really extreme 
but now it's you know it's all kinds of alternatives so um does that sort of answer the question to some degree yeah yeah so for us we just whatever's offered we we accept it that's our practice um you know whether we like it or not we we accept it but then you know it's up to us whether we eat it or give it to the cat <laughs> I think it's mm. very different from monastics. Uh, it is, yeah. Lay people where we, I've got a choice constantly every day about what I spend my money, what, what I yeah. seek in terms of food. Yeah, yeah. I'm not offered anything really. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It is different. Mm. Mm. There's been a lot of questions, and I'm imagining everyone's kind of a bit full up. But if there was one more burning issue that I could help with, offer something, we could do one. Yes. Yeah. Okay, question about guilt, and if you've done something in the past and can't make it better. Yeah, a very important question, because all of us have done things in the past This is that are maybe not very skillful. Anybody not? <laughs> um, the very important distinction between um, regret and guilt um, because obviously it is regretful if we make a mistake, if we hurt somebody or do something really harmful um, or make a mistake even. Um, and to feel regret, I'd rather not have done that, is is normal. And it's wholesome. In fact, the, the, in, in Buddhism we have these two qualities which are called guardians of the world, loka, Lokapala. So hiri, which is uh, regret, to regret over things that we've uh, got wrong in the past. It's also called shame, to be ashamed of having done something. Uh, Otapa, which is like an intelligent fear of the consequences of things that we might do. So kind of, it it sort of helps us to be restrained if we're uh, in a challenging situation or want something very much. You think Chandasuri, that's not that's not a good thing to do. That's not going to bring benefit. That's something that people are going to judge and criticize. Don't do it. So that that can be helpful, Hiriyanotapa. But it when it turns into guilt, it's a less useful um, re- re- response. Um, you know, and it's it's very prevalent so it's not that you should feel guilty about feeling guilt <laughs> don't don't be guilty about being guilt guilt about being guilty um but it's a matter of understanding it and investigating the mechanism just looking into it you know what happens and <clears throat> what for me what happens like if i if i do some you know the things that i've done that i regret what can happen is that I um, 
you know, you keep recreating, as you described, you keep recreating the situation. You try to keep, it's as though the mind is frantically trying to find a better ending to the story. You know, so you, you think what could have happened, what might have been better, and almost like rewriting the script. Um, the other thing is that you get kind of fixated on it and create a sense of self. It becomes it becomes you, because it's so much a part of your um, outlook. You know, you can be, you can become completely obsessed over some mistake that you've made. So the important thing is, well. The best thing is not to make mistakes, to be mindful, to be careful, and not to make mistakes. But we all make mistakes. However mindful, however careful we are, we still make mistakes. And to just contemplate what it is, why we make, how, how these things arise. So I make mistakes, you know, when I'm tired, you know, or not feeling very well, or frightened. Those are the usual things, you know, frightened of, of getting it wrong, or frightened of what might happen if I don't do something. Those are usually the things, or if I'm, and if I'm feeling not very well, if I'm feeling irritable, then I might, you know, do or say something that's regrettable. So, in terms of uh, future mistakes, I try to be careful just to, to look after myself, actually. So, you know, if I'm feeling tired, I try to make sure that I have a rest. If I'm feeling grumpy, you know, like some days you just wake up and you're grumpy. You hate everybody. <laughs> you don't want to talk to anybody or look at anybody or do anything. You know, on those kind of days, I, I'm very careful about what I take on, what I engage with. You know, and if somebody comes and says, oh, Ajahn, can I, can I have a word with you? And if, you know, if I'm feeling, if I don't want to, then I'll say, well, maybe we can find another time. You know, I don't feel I have to respond to every thing that's asked of me. You know, I find a way to, to put it off. Just because if I'm feeling grumpy and if I'm feeling tired, the chances are I'll, I'll, I'll mess up. I'll, I'll, I'll do something foolish. So it's kind of like having, you know, getting to know yourself, getting to know what you can do, what you can't do, your limitations, your capacity. Um, reflecting on past mistakes, it can be helpful just to look at the circumstances, to, re to recollect the circumstances around the incident, you know, whatever it was that you did or said, or whatever course of action that wasn't so helpful. Look around, and what you usually find is that you did what you thought was the right thing at the time. You thought it was going to be a good thing to do, a helpful thing to do. But you didn't have all the information that you have now. You didn't know what the result would be. You know, you didn't know that you would hurt somebody or that you would hurt yourself or whatever. You know, you didn't have all the information. So learning how to forgive ourselves is really important. You know, and just let let things be, let things go. If the person that maybe you hurt is still around, um, it can be helpful to make contact and say, look, I'm really sorry about whatever it was, you know, Please forgive me. I made a mistake. That can be useful. Um, if there's nothing you can do to, to make it better, then just forgive yourself. Don't create yourself as being this awful person who's made this mistake. The person who made the mistake is dead and gone long ago with the mistake. 
Right now, you're here. You're cultivating wholesome qualities. You're trying to transform your life into something. I mean, you're transforming your life into something really good. The mistakes you learn from as much as you can. So turning your mistakes into a into a resort a resource rather than an occasion for creating this sense of me having done something ghastly and feeling guilty about it. A lot of a lot of these kind of strategies are like it's like the ego trying to establish itself, you know, as being this dreadful person who's done this dreadful thing. Me, I did this awful thing. So we 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 embellish the me. I mean, there's <clears throat> it's it's interesting this this um, way that we create ourselves. You know, we we create wonderful selves. I'm the best. I'm the most wonderful. I did this fantastic thing, but we also create. I'm the most awful person. I did this terrible thing, um, this ghastly thing, and you know I can't tell anybody about it because it was so awful. And we just compound this sense of me. But as I said, that's dead and gone. It happened long ago. And now you have a chance to have learnt from it and to, um, you know, apply effort in order to avoid, you know, similar. Um, uh, incident, you know. So reflecting on it, thinking around it, learning what you can is a very skillful thing, but not not turning it into something to beat yourself up with. You've already beaten yourself up enough. You can stop doing that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I hope that's a bit helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Enough? Anyone else? Okay, enough.